You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 134th program of Think Again. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organisation dedicated to social change since 1997. I'm Jennifer Burrell. My usual co-host, Jacques, is having a break today, but I'm joined by Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute. He'll be telling us about his report, A Place to Call Home. It's time for a Social Housing Future Fund. Welcome to the program, Brendan. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Mm, pleasure. It was great to see the need for social housing highlighted in your study, Brendan. We've covered this program quite a few times on this program in different ways. Last August, we had per capita talking about intergenerational inequality in housing prices and the need for a comprehensive program to build social housing. And even further back in January 2021, Abigail Lewis talked about older women and homelessness and the evidence that public housing is the most effective way to tackle homelessness. So continuing with this theme, Brendan Coates, can you describe your model for doing something about homelessness? Thanks very much. So the basic issue we have here is that social housing is an important part um, of the housing supports that we offer in Australia. It's very effective as um, you sort of flagged as a way of reducing homelessness, particularly public housing. The issue is that we haven't had enough of it. So social housing has been declining as a share of the total housing stock over the course of the last, say, 30 odd years. And the real issue there is, you know, if it's a, if it's a declining share of the stock, it's kind of gone from 6% in the early 90s to just under 4% today. Mm-hmm. It means that there's not really much new, in the way of new social housing that's available who find themselves on hard times because most people who are in social housing stay for a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue here is really one of funding. Like social housing, you know, to be honest, it's, it's not particularly cheap. It involves giving a very deep housing subsidy, often to, you know, a, a, a very needy minority um, and in that world, what we've seen is state and federal governments have really not invested much in social housing because of the cost. And therefore, we found ourselves in this position where it's not really providing that safety net that, that it should. So uh, what Grattan has proposed is essentially a future fund as a way of trying to solve the long-term challenges in the lack of social housing. Mm-hmm. We have future funds for a whole bunch of different purposes. The original one was set up to fund the superannuation liabilities of public servants, Uh, partly funded from the sale of Telstra. We've also got ones for things like medical research and to help farmers with drought and so on. And the idea of a future fund is, look, it's a long-term challenge. You invest funds, you invest money in in with the future fund it's run by peter costello the former treasurer is the chair of the future fund that future fund then invests that capital in stocks bonds infrastructure and everything else a bit like your super uh, that generates a return over time that is used to meet this these long-term challenges 
And so what we've proposed is a, a similar um, arrangement with the Future Fund for Social Housing, a $20 billion endowment. The government would be borrowing that money in order to, to, to establish or seed that fund. And then the return from that, from that um, would essentially fund additional social housing grants, either to state governments or to community housing providers that would potentially build enough social housing, particularly if the states came on board, to stabilize, at least stabilise the housing, social housing share of the total housing stock. And the idea here is unlike some of the sort of previous social housing initiatives, like what Federal Labor did during the global financial crisis, where they did social housing as fiscal stimulus, this would be a long-running, enduring uh, support for social housing. Mm. It means you get that sustainable resource, that revenue base that you need to fund the construction of social housing and build up the stock in the long term. Mm. I would say that's the strength of your model because we often see spurts of funding where there's a spurt of housing, but it's obviously something we need, social housing on an ongoing basis. So um, I, definitely I think that's the strength of your model. You did mention federal government and state government. So can you just talk a bit about whether how you see this as a federal and or a state responsibility? So the issue with social housing is it's always been murky as to who is really responsible. So historically, the states have run social housing. So most social housing is run as public housing by a um, by state governments. Just to be clear, social housing is where you've got a 30% typically dis... You've, you've got a discounted rent so that rent, renters are not paying more than 30% of their income as rent. Mm. Um, so it's a, often a very big discount. Now, the issue is that states run social housing, but the federal government, you know, is the government that collects five in every six tax dollars in Australia because uh, it has access to the most major tax bases and therefore has um, the most money. And, and historically, when we've, you know, launched big social programs, if the federal government doesn't come to the party, it doesn't happen. So there's there's blame shifting between the Commonwealth and the states as to who is ultimately responsible. The federal government has only once in the last couple of decades really put money into social housing, and that was that social housing initiative under the Rudd government during the GFC mm -hmm. where they built 20,000 homes. Mm -hmm. So what we're proposing here is that the, the federal government would establish this fund it's $20 billion would be enough um, to generate 3,000 extra social housing units a year in perpetuity. Now, the, the amount of social housing you need to probably stabilise the stock is you probably need growth in of about 6,000. So it wouldn't be enough on its own to stabilise the stock, but it would be a materially cha material change to the trajectory we're on. Where mm -hmm. the states come to it, and this is something where the Morrison government has been uh, pretty critical of state governments from having stepped back from their responsibilities, and to be honest, not without some justification. Mm -hmm. You know, since the federal government under the ALP in, uh, during the global financial crisis did that social housing initiative of 20,000 homes, they've really pulled back. The states have pulled back. They've built almost nothing in the, in the subsequent 10 years. Yeah. And so the way that we would see that you would solve this problem is you would require matching contributions from the states. So the federal mm -hmm. government would say, okay, we're going to put these grants on the table uh, to build social housing. Uh, we're going to sort of offer up to each state government, look, you will, we're willing to build social housing in your jurisdiction. But the requirement mm -hmm. is you have to come to the table with 50-50 contributions, which is the way the old national housing, affordable housing agreement has yeah. worked. Yep. And that would allow potentially, instead of 3,000 homes a year, 6,000 homes a year, yeah, and that yeah. would put a floor under the stock. And then we mm -hmm. would start to see the stock stabilise relative to the total housing stock in Australia, relative to population mm. growth. And then if, this, if the fund grows over time, a future government could increase the size of the endowment beyond $20 billion, mm. then you would start to see social housing grow yeah. relative and as a share of the total housing stock. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that, Brendan. So 
as I said before, I think a real strength of the model is the idea of having a scheme in place, a way of funding social housing in, perpetu- in perpetuity on an ongoing basis, uh, with both the federal and the state government having input into that. Um, I guess my question about it is the number of houses, even 6,000 a year, uh, doesn't seem to be a lot because the level of homelessness in Australia, we certainly are at a real crisis point, a growing crisis. It's been crisis for a while, I would say. So Homelessness Australia predicts that nearly 166,000 households will experience homelessness in 2022. So that's households, not people. And there are about 180,000 households on the waiting list for public housing, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, or the AIHW. And that's 180,000 households waiting for public housing, not including community housing. So given this level of need, or 3,000 if it was just the federal government or even 6,000 being matched by state governments, it seems like um, doesn't seem like a very large number to match that really high level of need. So wouldn't it, I'm just wondering, wouldn't it, that's if we just committed to such a small amount, wouldn't it be a bit like trying to go up escalators that, that keep going down faster than you can walk up them with uh, homelessness projected to grow? By all I the- think... Mm-hmm. So, Jennifer, this this is a really good question. So, I think it's worth stepping back and and thinking about okay, what what's the right amount of social housing in the community? Like, because different countries have very different amounts. So, in Australia, for mm-hmm. example, social housing has never been more than six percent of the housing stock. Going back, you know, mm-hmm. going back to um, you know, if you're thinking about going back into the seventies, earlier on, it was it was higher, sort of before the onset of the Menzies government, and then the Menzies government sold off some. But it's never housed most low-income Australians. Different countries have different different responses to this. So in, say, the UK, mm-hmm. it's what would be considered social housing is something closer to 20% of the housing stock. Part of this is about different values, about what's the right degree of distribution, redistribution in, in community, which is a contested thing. Part mm-hmm. of it is also, okay, well, if you're going to spend, like if you wanted to build, say, 100,000 extra social housing dwellings, you know, the cost of that to the government that took that on is probably $30 billion. Um, you know, that is an enormous sum of money. Now, you can raise the question about whether that's politically feasible in our current environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that would take social housing from being 4% of the housing stock to 5% of the housing stock. Um, so it is one of those ones where people have different views. The, I think the value of our work is really the model. You know, mm-hmm. you could use that model if a government decides it has a set of values in future that mm-hmm. it wants to build 50,000 social housing units fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. You could go a fair way to getting that by using okay. this kind of model. It's just mm-hmm. that the, you people have different there. It, that's it. I don't think there's one scientific answer to how much social housing that we actually need. Mm-hmm. I, the, the view that we tend to take is you want social housing to be there for people who would otherwise be at really severe risk of homelessness. Uh, mm. That's a minimum. Now, mm. I could imagine a world where social housing is twenty percent of the housing stock, uh, but it requires an incredibly different approach to funding social housing, and probably therefore also taxation than we have today. Mm. Okay. Well, on that note, thanks for uh, outlining uh, that viewpoint from the Grattan Institute's uh, point of view. Uh, we'll go to a music break with now with burning down, burning down the house by Talking Heads, and continue discussion with. Our own talking heads after that. Watch out. You might get what you're after. Ooh. 
You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Merhaba. Bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family, because you have a date with Özesu and Özgü. 3CR, 8.55am, Thursdays, 6.30pm to 7pm. See you all then. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR, 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today I'm speaking with Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute about his report, A Place to Call Home. It's time for a social housing future fund. So, Brendan, the model seems to present a pretty uh, residual model of social housing. I, I think I'd describe it keeping it just for people in major need and in significant risk of becoming homeless, not just in inverted commas for low income people. Um, and this seems to reflect, I would say, a trend over the last 30 years or so from a, a safety net model to an ambulance model, as some have phrased it. But as, as many of people have pointed out, the tightening of public housing eligibility has led to a lot of problems with public housing becoming more uh, stigmatised and more challenging for people living on estates when when so many people living closely together um, have issues with things like mental health, drug use, long-term history of sleeping rough and not being acculturated to stable housing. And, and then, of course, you have women fleeing family violence coming into all of this mix. So I thought for this, my understanding is for this reason, a more mixed housing model has come into favour in recent years that included people on a low income. So with your model really aimed at the pointy end of need, how would you respond to that? So I think you've got to recognise where we're starting, which is that social housing is less than 4% of total housing today. So most low-income earners are not in the pri- are in the private rental market. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're building a, a model of, we're trying to build a model that in, involves social housing being at least there for people who are most in need. I think one of the challenges that we have is if you think about an alternative model where we might open up social housing to a larger cohort of people, and I'd, I'd point out that, you know, when we talk about 180-odd thousand people being on social housing waiting lists, mm-hmm. most of those people are not... Or households. Yeah, households on the waiting list. We're not talking about people necessarily who are at the very pointy end. Like most of those people are in a world where they are low income, although some of the income thresholds for some of the state um, eligibility for public housing in some of the states are relatively high, um, surprisingly. Um, you're in a world where... Most of those people, they're basically being rationed off a waiting list. So if you're if you're at severe risk of homelessness, you might get a house within 6, 12, 18 months. Now, if you're in really serious risk of homelessness, that's too long. Um, but if you're not at serious risk of homelessness and you're just a general low-income earner who's in need of support, then you can be waiting 10, 15, 20 years. So um, it, I think in practice, those social housing wait, waiting lists and the eligibility criteria sort of 
um, I kind of, it kind of presents the idea of an entitlement to social housing that is just not operationalized in any meaningful way. So if you're thinking about taking our existing fairly small stock and then opening it up to other cohorts, I think any sort of philosophical um, sort of ordering of who you try to help first, you probably want to help people who are at risk of homelessness. Homelessness is an awful situation, you know. The people who people who experience homeless, severe homelessness or serious homelessness, you know, they tend to live twenty years. Their life expectancy is twenty years lower than the broader population. Like that's mm-hmm. a, sign, a sign of how bad it is. Mm-hmm. And if you open up social housing, like if you open up these subsidies to broader cohorts, what you're kind of saying is instead of helping all the people who are really, really in deep trouble in those home, the risk of people based on sort of the numbers you put forward on from Homelessness Australia and the risk number of people who might be homeless in 2022, we're not going to help those people first. Some of those people won't get support and instead we'll open it up to broader cohorts who are less needy per se. Like mm-hmm. that's a that's a moral philosophical position that I find really hard to accept. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I guess I would say it's probably a more social justice approach. Uh, that that It's treating housing as a human right rather than a privilege. I think the issue is you've got to start, you've got to acknowledge where we're starting. And so the consequence of taking a broader approach is that you are helping lower, less needy people when you haven't already helped really, really needy people. Because otherwise it ends up being a lottery, um, which was an issue with affordable housing generally. Mm. Uh, Because, Mm. you know, there, there is obviously the argument that social housing, if you concentrate people in a community, then it's really bad. Our research tends to suggest it's not so much whether you concentrate people in it's in the building it's more if you concentrate people in a particular suburb that has particularly low um poor access to services poor access to jobs that matters more all right thanks brendan uh in the beginning of your report you outline uh the problem area to be addressed including that inequality is increasing in general and more australians are becoming homeless but after uh raising the problem of growing inequality as part of the as a part of the context, your model doesn't really seem to address the systemic structures and processes creating and maintaining inequality. So some people argue that unless really meaningful redistribution of resources in the broader sense is going to occur, the tinkering on the visible edges, like visible homelessness, for example, isn't going to make any difference. Homelessness will just keep expanding. So what would you say to that? Well, this isn't the only proposal we've put forward to support improve housing in Australia. So Grattan's written a lot on the need to, say, wind back negative gearing in the capital gains tax discount to reform planning rules that allow more housing to be built, which would reduce prices and therefore reduce, um, you know, the transfer of the, the wealth holdings of people that are particularly well off in the community. You know, we've looked before at questions around inheritance taxes. So these are all issues that you need to deal with. Social. This is a this proposal mm-hmm. is about social housing to avoid homelessness. Mm. There are other sort of parts of the system that need to change, including strengthening the social safety net generally, which is kind of why we mm-hmm. say that you should also raise rent assistance. Yeah, I guess that's another point too. Is rent assistance is quite low. Like for most people, they're getting from about forty eight to $65 a week, um, unless you feel the criteria to be a primary carer. And so 40%, if you raise 40% of $48, that's another 20 a week. And if you raise it of uh, 65 a week, that's another, so it's uh, 26 a week. So 
um, other people are, are like Homelessness Australia's election platform. They're they're arguing to raise Centrelink as a whole. So uh, I I I guess I would favour them all raising Centrelink as a whole because I don't think twenty twenty six dollars a week is going to put help you much, really. And as you say, that uh, people on this rent assistance are so poor, they're likely not even to be using it all for their rent anyway. They might be using it for food or something like that. So, Jennifer, when we say Centrelink, we mean the payments like JobSeeker, the job unemployment Seeker, youth allowance, yes, yeah. similar payments to that. Yeah, that's what I mean. That, that's right. So we also support raising JobSeeker by, you know, I think at least $100 a week. You know, I think Ooh, there's a good case okay. for making it to be equal to the age pension rate. Um, now, that's obviously not cheap. Like, that's a very big change um, mm-hmm. that um, governments of neither side have been willing to commit to at this point. Mm-hmm. I think that a broader point to keep in mind when you're thinking about rent assistance or or these, pro- particularly rent assistance, actually, is it's, it's an entitlement. And I think there's something that advocates of social housing miss about the fact that because rent assistance is an entitlement, even though the rate is inadequate on an individual level, as far as a policy that has redistributed income towards low-income and vulnerable people, it has been incredibly successful in the last 20 years. So rent assistance mm-hmm. spending has gone from less than $2 billion in 2003 to 2004 to $5.4 billion in 2021. That's almost a doubling in sort of after in when you after account for inflation. That's a huge mm-hmm. success compared to say social housing spending that's gone backwards. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is that once it's an entitlement, it's really hard to get rid of. It's very obvious who the losers are. So you know the coalition government came in and they they didn't invest anything in social housing and. Uh, a number of groups said that's a bad thing. You should have done that. But you mm. couldn't point explicitly to who lost from that mm-hmm. in an explicit. Here's Judy who's going mm-hmm. to be end up getting kicked out of her house because the federal government has made a decision not to support social housing. Mm. Whereas so, with rent assistance, it's very clear who the losers mm. are. And I think that's actually mm. something if you're interested in trying to push, as a lot of your listeners are, in trying to reduce poverty and, and support the most vulnerable Entitlement-based programs are incredibly effective mm. politically. They they yeah. stand the test of time. Thanks for explaining that, Brendan. Um, so we we've only got uh, one or two minutes left, or about one and a half minutes. So I'm just really interested in something you said to me in a recent conversation that you do believe that pub- we do need public housing. Um, of course, social housing covers public housing and community housing. Public housing being owned and managed by government and community housing managed by not-for-profits. So you see a real place for public housing? Absolutely. So the the difference being that community housing is probably better at offering sort of a set of wraparound services for particular cohorts, right? If you're thinking of women, older women, uh, who might have very particular needs, community housing can be quite good at, at, at helping with that. The same with disability or Indigenous housing, you know, where you want agency and sovereignty mm-hmm. you know, built into the, the way the program's delivered. The thing with public housing, though, is that public housing is probably better place to help people who are otherwise, you know, they're, they're, they're hard to help. Like, you know, they come with a bunch of issues, whether it be mental health issues, mm-hmm. uh, drug and alcohol um, abuse, um, in that system circumstance, the security of tenure that comes with public housing is very valuable. And in fact, mm-hmm. what we've seen in some of the recent work from Infrastructure Victoria was that public housing was more effective in keeping people out of homelessness than what mm-hmm. community housing was. Thank you so much, 
Brendan, and I can't believe the time has gone so fast, but we are going to wrap up. So thank you so much, Brendan Coates, for talking to us about your Grattan Institute report, A Place to Call Home. And um, there are a few things we certainly agree on. We need solid commitment to building more social housing into perpetuity, especially public housing. And plus, we need an increase in Centrelink payments, which I understand, as you explained, the Grattan Institute has supported in other areas, uh, in other studies and other research. So thank you for highlighting all of this through your research and contributing to ongoing discussion about the need for social housing. Thanks very much, Jennifer. Real pleasure. And for our community announcement today, we're having a subscription drive. If you want to support Think Again and Independent Radical Community Radio, make sure you're a 3CR subscriber. You can do this online at 3cr.org.au. If you want to do it by phone or work out how to do it by post, you can ring 03-9419-8377. So that's a Melbourne number. Nine four one nine eight three double seven. So make sure you're a three CR subscriber if you can. Otherwise, just enjoy the programs. Uh, by doing this, you can help bring about a better world, along with all the other people who think and care about the way we're going. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Think Again on Three CR Community Radio today. If you want to contact us, you can email Borderlands borders at borderlands.org.au. Our programs are available by podcast and via the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. Meanwhile, stay tuned for the following program, Jailbreak, which gives a voice to our brothers and sisters in prison. To bring us into this program, we have Milku Mana by King Stingray. Thank you.